You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is Episode 8.2, The Danger is to the Body and It Can Kill. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, calling for more precipitation in anime. Looking to punch up a scene? Just add a little rain, mist, fog, or snow, and watch the plaudits roll in. And I'm Nina, new to Stardust memory, and once we turn off the mics, I will be arguing that mist and fog are not precipitation. I can't believe you would attack me like this. Coming up behind me when I can't see you <laughs> due to the weather conditions caused by all this precipitation. Tom, let's not fight in front of the listeners. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 708 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters. Pablo O, Rabbit Von B, Mekatitlan, Seamus B, Juniper, Miguel S, Lynn N, Saf, Jordan B, Marcelo C, and Delayed on MTA. Aren't we all? (laughs) You keep us genki. Mobile Suit Breakdown is entirely listener-supported. We do not have sponsors. We do not sell ads. If you would like us to make it to the Gundam series of the 2000s and beyond, become a subscriber today at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we are covering 0083 Episode 2, Endless Pursuit, or Owarinaki Suigeki. The original Japanese version also included an alternate English title, War Is Not Over, Yet, that was not preserved in the English release. All the English language sources that I checked give this episode's initial release date as June 27th, 1991. And they're all wrong. <laughs> what? In truth, Episode 2 was released together with the finalized Episode 1 on either May 22nd or May 23rd, 1991, in a two-for-the-price-of-one package that cost 4,660 yen, roughly $34 at the time, which would be the equivalent of about $75 today after being adjusted for inflation. I think the confusion about the release date comes from the fact that the tapes for the show are labeled Stardust Memory 01, Stardust Memory 02, and so on up to 12, but the tape numbers do not correspond to the episode that is on that tape. The June 27th release date is correct as for tape 02, but tape 02 contained episode 3. Episode 2 was on tape 1 in May. It's a very understandable mistake, and I assume it is as widespread as it is, simply because all of the sites are just referencing each other's wrong data, instead of spending an hour looking at Japanese sources and cross-checking them against contemporaneous advertisements to nail down the true release dates. You know, just some very normal behavior from a person with a very normal brain. I said May 22nd or May 23rd earlier, because a bunch of normally reliable sources say that the series started on the 22nd, but then they put the release date for the first tape on the 23rd with no explanation for the discrepancy. One source claims that the Laserdisc version was released a day early on the 22nd, but that's contradicted by the contemporaneous advertisements I found, which list only a single date, the 23rd, for both versions. 
I can imagine that there was some kind of early release for pre-ordered copies, or maybe an early release that was exclusive to certain retail partners, but I can't actually find anything to corroborate that theory. This episode also marks the beginning of a period of some uncertainty about who is actually running the show behind the scenes. Last week I mentioned that Kase Mitsuko, a Sunrise Mecha anime stalwart just coming off of a stint on City Hunter, occupied the chief director's chair with her sometime collaborator Gobu Fuyunori in charge of the script. However, starting from episode 2, Kase's role in the production is going to diminish steadily until her departure around the middle of the series. Gobu would also leave the production after the fourth episode. Kase will be replaced by Imanishi Takashi, also coming off of a stint on City Hunter, and previously an assistant director on two episodes of Double Zeta. Imanishi would finish out the series as chief director, and he personally wrote the scripts for most of the back half of the show. He's remained in charge of it ever since. He oversaw the remastering and redubbing process in 2006, and he wrote the manga retelling 0083 Rebellion, which just wrapped up last month. But from now until she actually leaves the project entirely, Kase and Imanishi are both credited as chief director for each episode, a situation I don't think I've ever seen before. To add to the puzzle, Imanishi was simultaneously credited both as chief director and as assistant director for this episode, suggesting that perhaps he was brought in to be the assistant director and storyboard artist, but then ended up taking on the responsibilities of the chief director as production continued. And because the scriptwriter Gobu is going to leave the project and Imanishi is going to take over writing for most of the end of the show, I think it's an open question at what point Imanishi's view of the story starts to dominate. Ueda Masuo, 0083's producer, says that things within the studio were not going smoothly under Kase's direction, and that he asked Imanishi to help out, though I don't know if he necessarily intended for Imanishi to take over at that point. What he means by not going smoothly remains a mystery as well. I do hope it comes out someday, but it took more than 40 years before Yas took responsibility for the issues with the original Kukuru's Doan's Island, so don't hold your breath. But now, let's listen to the recap. Cole is determined to stop Gato and retrieve the Unit 2, but this is his first real experience of combat, and he's terrified. He sits frozen in his cockpit, the battle outside muffled by the deafening sound of his own rapid breathing, only snapping out of it when Gato addresses him directly. It's not much of a fight. Gato easily outmaneuvers the inexperienced young pilot, then escapes with his wingmen under cover of another missile barrage. A heavy mobile suit overlooking the base from a nearby cliff relays targeting information to the support submarine and launches its own missiles. They manage to destroy the base's command center, with most of the senior officers inside. The remains of the test pilot team, Burning, Allen, and Keith, reunite with Cole and set out to retrieve the Unit 2, while Captain Synapse and the Albion act as temporary command center. Just like Cole, Mina had frozen up, terrified while watching the battle, but her desire to protect the Unit 1 and Unit 2, machines she's devoted so much time and energy to, is even stronger than her fear, and she and Mora follow the mobile suit team in one of the jeeps from the base. 
catching up to Gato is urgent. The bridge crew of the Albion detect something entering the atmosphere nearby, and although they cannot identify it, Captain Synapse guesses at its significance. A recovery ship, here to take Gato and the Unit 2 back to space. The Federation team pick up the pace, but the rookies are all nerves. Keith breaks into hysterical laughter, tears in his eyes, while Cole is tense and quiet. Alan jokes and teases, while Burning tries to calm them down. They might be up against the famous Lieutenant Annabel Gatto, Demon of Solomon, but they just need to keep their heads, rely on their training, and remember that they're not alone. Gatto makes his rendezvous with the recovery ship, a Komusai, and the crew quickly secure the Unit 2 for launch. From their vantage above the landing site, Alan and Keith are meant to target the ship, but one of Gato's wingmen, the Dom, sneaks up on them, killing Alan with a point-blank shot to the cockpit. On the ground, Burning holds off the other wingman, the Zamel, while Cole, after a long hesitation, opens fire on the Komusai while it's taxiing for takeoff. The ship tumbles end over end through the air, trailing smoke, before returning to the ground carving a trail of fire across the desolate landscape. Somehow, Gato and the Unit 2 survived the crash, and the two Gundams clash yet again, Gato monologuing about freedom for space noids, justice, and the glory of Xeon, and disdainful of someone like Cole, who doesn't seem to be fighting for anything. Cole is oddly deferential toward the veteran officer, but skeptical of his motives. Once more, Gato disengages from the fight and escapes, making for a backup rendezvous point near the Xeon submarine. Cole, Keith, and Burning continue their pursuit, and a second Federation mobile suit team sets out from the Albion as the sky lightens and dense fog settles over the already difficult terrain. The second team are wiped out long before the first catches up. Cole is preoccupied, frightened and worrying over Gato's criticism when Nina radios him Please protect the Unit 1 and bring the Unit 2 back safely. For today, that's enough to fight for. Despite the low visibility, it doesn't take them long to find the enemy. Gato's wingmen cover the escape. There's no room on the recovery ship for all of them, and securing the Unit 2 takes priority. Keith and Burning take on one wingman each, leaving Cole to chase down Gato. Nina and Mora watch the fight from a rocky promontory but can see little more than flashes of light through the fog. Even with his new sense of purpose, and help from Nina, who radios in to tell him some of the Unit 2's weaknesses, Cole cannot stop the Demon of Solomon from jetting away to the recovery ship, disappearing over the sea and into the mist. Well, this may be our second episode, but it is our first episode with the full opening and ending. Well, I guess the ending is the same. With the full opening. <laughs> they do a couple of interesting things with it. There's a lot of hearkening back to previous Gundam, and there are a lot of moments in this intro that feel as though they are taken from other intros. It's a lot of silent yelling <laughs> that reminds me of Double Zeta, and mm -hmm. I'm sure it's come up in other ones. Lots of running over a background of outer space. 
And in that particular instance, it's Cole running and he's uh, putting on his, his pilot's helmet as he's doing so. And this is, I think, a pretty explicit recreation of the bit in the first Gundam opening when Amaro runs essentially on the same angle towards the camera while buttoning up his Federation uniform jacket. And it's not the only time in the OP that they do that. There are a couple of other shots that have clearly been recreated directly from the first Gundam OP, including one of the Gundam like pointing its rifle and shooting that is just a shot-for-shot recreation. There's a bit where some missiles explode and the GPO-2 emerges out of a cloud of smoke that is very like Zeta's opening. They also make sure to include a time progression element. This time it's just counting up years rather than showing human evolution into new types. That section of the OP is actually worth expounding upon a little bit. The progression of years from 0079 to 0083 interacts with Ko, who's the only other person on screen at the time. He starts out sort of like running, basically sprinting towards the camera during the 79 and 80 years as they're ticking up, those being the years of the war. And then after the war ends, he kind of slows to a stop and he just sort of stands there looking off into space as the years tick up 81, 82. You are precisely the wrong person to mention this to because you cannot corroborate it. But something about the timing and intervals between the years as it counts up feels off. Like it's not quite synced with the music or like the time intervals are not exactly the same between each year or something. Something about it feels off to me. Tom cannot tell, (laughs) incapable of telling me whether he agrees or not. Rhythm and I have a tempestuous relationship, and we prefer not to be in the same room together. Rhythm? He doesn't know him. Get out. You're lucky I didn't spit-take my tea just then. Another repeat, although, of course, this is something that gets done in openings for all kinds of TV shows, not even just for animated shows, but we are given a couple of shots of groups of important characters. First up, a group that I assume are test pilots, even though it includes some people we haven't met yet. A bunch of men in coveralls and flight jackets. Then the bridge crew of the Albion. But what I really like about the shot of the crew of the Albion and of Nina and Mora is that both of those are shot as if these groups are posing for a photograph. There's something very dynamic about how they're looking at the camera. And both of these tell us a fair amount about these different characters. If you pause on the bridge crew of the Albion, you can see, oh, that's the hapless guy. That's the serious guy. That's the, you know, you get an impression of everybody's personality just from that very brief shot. Similarly with Nina and Mora, Mora's playfulness, Nina's absorption in what she's doing and her distractibility, but also that she is capable of being good-natured and smiley under the right circumstances. (laughs) And finally, the song, which I really like. The Winner, a perennial favorite, a top contender for best Gundam OP among many Gundam fans. I'm, I'm fond of it, but I wouldn't put it in my, you know, top five. I'm terrible at picking favorites and I won't even attempt to rank it, but I do really like this song. The lyrics are very much about moving on, about forgetting the past. Yeah, right? It's The lyrics feel very appropriate to a Gundam show. It's all about how there is no winner in this fight, about looking up to the stars, a burning heart, 
rejecting the past and its dreams. It talks about love, but love as something destructive, and I don't think they mean romantic love. I think they mean love like Gato feels for this idea of Zeon. But the idea is about living in the moment and about how your passion for life can melt even a frozen heart, which feels like it's a song that is being directed to someone who needs to learn this, mm. right? It is a song being directed towards Gato by somebody who cares about him. Cares about him as a person instead of caring about him as Gato the... Zeon fighter ace. <laughs> exactly. Gato the legend. Demon of Solomon or whatever they called him. Solomon no Akuma. Yeah. Um, Gato the legend can never forget because that is what sustains him as a, as a concept as an existence in this world. Before we get too sidetracked talking about Gato, there are a couple of other structural things I wanted to talk about. I can't remember the last time that we had this style of narration in a Gundam show, but even before the intro music, we get a kind of last time on uh, with narration and someone explaining what's just happened in the show. We haven't had a regular narrator since first Gundam. There is an eye catch in the middle of the episode, which <laughs> when I first watched it, my initial reaction was, oh, that's a horrible place to put the eye catch. Why did they put it right there? Beat. Wait, why is there an <laughs> eye catch at all? If you're not familiar with what an eye catch is, it's the little bit of canned animation that plays at the beginning and end of the commercial break in the middle of the episode. Uh, so here we get like the Gundam's face or part of it in flat colors and a little musical jingle. Of course, this is an OVA. There are no commercials. Why did they even make this? And I assume a lot of it is just habit. These people make a lot of TV episodes. Maybe it was meant to be flexible. If they wanted to put it on TV later, they always could. Or maybe there's like a production reason. Like often the front and back halves of the episode are divided up for like work purposes. Different groups of animators work on the two halves. So I think it's just that they're accustomed to organizing the workflow in this two halves of an episode way. And so they're continuing to operate on that established methodology. And now that I think of it, War in the Pocket also had a mid-episode eye catch and was also an OVA. So I've definitely seen OVAs from this era that don't have them. So it is a little strange that the Gundam ones so consistently do. We'll have to keep an eye on that as we watch future ones to see if they ever abandon the practice. As for the ending, for me, it's kind of the worst of both worlds. I don't, oh, no. I don't particularly like the song or feel like it really fits with the show, but it's also very catchy and a total earworm. And every time we watch one of these episodes, that song is stuck in my head for two days. Don't worry, fans of Magic by Jacob Wheeler. I like the song. Nina may have betrayed you, but I'm still here. I have never betrayed anyone ever. Uh-huh. I just, uh... Look, there's no accounting for taste. Yeah. I can't hold it against you. I just don't see how it fits. I don't see why that song was chosen out of all the possible songs, the infinite songs that could have been. Because, Nina, and I, I'm surprised that I even need to explain this to you, they're not looking for a love affair. These characters just need that magic, that Gundam magic. <sighs> but there were a lot of other things about the animation and sound that really stood out to me. That very first scene after the uh, opening credits. 
when Cole is in black and white, panting in the cockpit as he stands off against Gato. And you can hear some other battle sounds, but they're muffled. The panting is loud. But as anyone who has ever been very afraid knows, that's how it can feel when you're really frightened. Like, the sound of your own breathing just kind of fills up everything. In the whole scene, only Cole and his cockpit are in black and white. The rest, wide shots of the two Gundams, that's in normal color, Gato is in normal color. And I think that color choice is designed to emphasize the way Ko's panic is like shutting his senses down. He's getting tunnel vision. Everything's going a little bit dark. He's completely frozen until Gato addresses him and then it switches to color. And some of the way they quickly cut around Ko's actions, his face, his eyes, one eye at a time, then the other, like all of this goes to emphasize Ko's mental psychological state. And they use that same fear, that same panting noise to demonstrate fear, to draw a connection between Cole and Nina, other than that they both love Gundams. There wasn't any sense of a similarity between these two characters before. The first episode really felt like it was inviting us to maybe contrast them, but not compare them as people who might have things in common. Then here, Nina is on the bridge, sweating, panting, frozen, more or less. And that cuts to Cole, again, same kind of panting in his cockpit, still fighting. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. can use the sound and these cuts to make this direct connection between the two of them. Which does get reinforced throughout this episode. We see here that Nina is a reckless driver in a way that is kind of similar to Cole in the first episode. Um, we get this scene of Nina and Mora in the Jeep together, which very closely mirrors the Cole-Keith scene from before. I love scenes in cars. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> At least in this show, there's still a fair amount of movement of the characters even within the car. Lots of great facial expressions. But these two Jeep scenes, I really, really like. Mm -hmm. uh, and they even get to make the, at this point, very old joke for this kind of scene, which is, uh, shouldn't you be watching the road? <laughs> There's something kind of fun about the way they depict Mora, which is we only see part of her body. I think because she's such a large, imposing woman, we get shots like in the Jeep where Nina is the focal point. Mora is in the foreground, but so much so that you can only see like part of her chest and her arm. And then you see her like point ahead like, hey, shouldn't you be? But it's very similar to in the prior episode with Keith. Yeah, she's tapping on his shoulder and you see her chest and her arm, but you can't see her face because she's so much taller than him. Right. And then later in the episode, we get a lot of bits of Ko and Nina essentially interacting on a level that nobody else is getting. Sometimes that's verbal, a communication between the two of them. Often it's just the ways that they're looking at each other. We spend a lot of time watching them watch each other. And at two of Ko's big moments of crisis throughout this episode, Nina is there to help him resolve the crisis. Most dramatically at the very end of the episode, when he's on his back, Gato's about to get him, and Nina gives him that little bit of, of advice, attack the cooling system in the shield that allows him to drive Gato off and survive the day. Earlier, though, when Ko is desperately struggling to find something to believe in, because Gato has told him, you'll never beat me if you don't have something to believe in, and Burning has just told them all that they need something to, like, hold on to, that's the moment that Nina's voice comes in over the radio, 
and says, Cole, please get me my Gundams back. And then that seemingly becomes his guiding star for the rest of the episode. It's funny. That whole first episode, his fascination with the Gundam, his obsession, almost feels childlike. All he wants to do is look at it and talk about it and pilot it. It seems as though Nina doesn't have much patience for this, that he's getting in the way. But then there are aspects of her attitude toward the Gundams that feel similarly childish. Her reaction when she first runs onto the bridge of the Albion and sees the Unit 1 and Unit 2 fighting, she's like, my Gundams! <laughs> what did you think you made them for? What, what did you design them for, woman? Well, they're both like children playing with dolls, albeit in different ways. Cole kind of wants to take the dolls and smash them together for fun. And Nina loves putting them together, loves building them. It just reminds me of this story that my parents love to tell about my childhood, which is that for my first birthday, they got a Humpty Dumpty pinata, which would have mostly been fun for my cousins, which is fine. <laughs> but <laughs> I was probably too little to break much of anything or to eat much candy. But I really liked the pinata. I thought the pinata was my toy. And so when everybody broke it, I got really upset and sad. Oh. Even though that's what a piñata is for, right? A piñata is to break open, to release candy and or toys everywhere. And there's almost a similar <laughs> disconnect for Nina, who one imagines if she could, would preserve the Gundams forever. Well, this feels like kind of an end of history, 90s, post-Cold War kind of feeling of like, the war is over. We live in a time of peace. And yeah, we're still building mobile suits, we're still building these weapons, and Ko is still a soldier and a pilot, but I don't think they seriously expect there to be a war. Nina wants to build cool mobile suits that go fast and are better than the prior generation, but she doesn't imagine that they're actually going to be used in battle, because against who? Xeon is defeated, the war is over. We live in a time of peace. Now, that wasn't true in the 90s, and it wasn't true in UC-82, but that didn't stop people from thinking that way. And this is part of what Gato criticizes about Ko and about all the soldiers of the Federation. The idea is that these professional soldiers in the Federation aren't warriors spending every moment anticipating the next fight. They're a kind of fancy bureaucrat. I want to come back to that, but before we get too far from talking about Nina and, and also the animation, at the beginning, she has this horrified reaction to her beautiful Gundams being put in combat. At the end, she smiles to see that the Unit 1 is more or less in one piece. It's still here. She's very happy. Then she realizes how upset Cole is, and she becomes more serious and sad. Her feelings manage to get beyond just caring about the Gundams and actually considering the human people engaged in what's happening. Well, her feelings about Ko are shown to steadily evolve throughout the episode. Perhaps the key turning point is when she asks Mora, hey, what was, what was that kid's name again? Mm -hmm. Ko, huh? Ensign Ko Uraki. She sees him as a partner in this mission to reclaim the Gundams. And perhaps as the guardian and caretaker of the Unit 1. She's come to the realization that her beautiful baby Gundam needs to go out into the world, and she has found someone who she can entrust it to. 
I feel like on paper, if you were just describing the events of this episode, it would seem like kind of a nothing episode. It would seem like one easily passed over. Oh, they pursue Gato through the Australian desert and they don't catch him. But it's okay. so good. How it's dare so you? It's so good. It's so good. This is one of the best episodes of Gundam, in my opinion. I was really surprised watching it again because I didn't, I barely remembered this from my first watch through 15 years ago. But this time, this is like, this is a top tier episode. Um, and so much of that is legitimately clever writing. There's there's some very good stuff in here, including probably 0083's best meme, which is Gato like lecturing Ko about what is necessary to be a soldier. And Ko like, oh, okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm the enemy, you idiot. They do a lot of really interesting things with light. Yeah, in addition to the writing, the directing, the storyboarding, the animation, it's all firing on all cylinders, and it comes together to make a phenomenal episode. And one that I think is actually a great little, like, capsule episode. With the benefit of that narration at the beginning, you could watch just this episode and get a very satisfying Gundam experience. And in fact... I propose that it would actually make a really good movie to do just the first two episodes and expand them a little bit. I could see that. There were two main ways that light got used in this episode that I really noticed. The first is that that high level of contrast we were talking about before, those bright highlights, dark shadows, and sharp edges between the two, continue throughout this episode, and in scenes where normally the light conditions wouldn't cause that, they find an excuse, <laughs> whether it's the flashing light of an explosion or a beam saber, to again add those deep shadows and harsh highlights. Well, we spend most of the episode in conditions of low visibility. Uh, the first half of the episode is all at night, and the back half in the morning, but with all this mist, all this fog. And that is a visual representation of the uncertainty, the mystery, the doubt that Cole, Burning, Keith, this whole team are feeling. After they've found Gato, driven him off, it's only then that the morning dawns, the light shines in, the mist dissipates, and they can see clearly. Something about the veiled quality of the flashes of light in the mist is really wonderful. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that in a couple of scenes, the mist responds to movement in a really yes, beautiful way. Yes, yes. Not always consistently. I think it's probably coming down to particular animators in particular scenes. But when it happens, it looks phenomenal. The lights in the mist serve a couple of different purposes. Uh, in the middle of the fight, it adds this suspense and fear because they're almost like will-o'-wisps. They're like ghosts in the fog. Nothing about them feels very definite. Yes, you saw a flash of light there, but where is the enemy now? <laughs> and they use this for one of my favorite types of scenes for emphasizing the skill and power of an enemy, which is when the Calent team enters the mist. We don't see the fight. We see them walking in very confident. Then we see Gato activate the beam saber, and then we pull way, 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 way back to get the view from the submarine as just little explosions in the mist pop up one by one. Yeah, when Gato first sneaks up on them, it's like a classic horror movie scene, right? He appears from the mist right behind someone, and there's that thrum mm -hmm. sound when he draws his beam saber. Yeah, it's a slasher movie, but for mobile suits. 
But the other thing you mentioned about that pullback, that we see the scene of the Callant team being destroyed at a remove, at a far distance, reminded me of another thing I very much liked in contrast to the mobile suit gore of the first episode. Several of the deaths in this episode are dealt with at a very far remove. They're retrieving the other test pilot's body from his ruined mobile suit. But we don't see that up close. We get a shot of the whole base, you know, and people putting out fires and people tending the wounded. And then from high above, a couple of people scrambling to the cockpit of this downed mobile suit to retrieve the body. We don't see Gato make mincemeat of Callant's team. We watch someone who has a lot of confidence in Gato watch a bunch of explosions on the shore hidden by the mist and say, oh, maybe he's setting a new record. We don't see the fight between Burning and the Zamel at the end. We briefly see them grappling and then Keith finds the wreckage, beam saber still burning through the hole in the back of the Zamel. Which in some ways echoes what Burning says to Keith and to Cole when they wonder about whether they should just leave Alan and keep on with the mission. He says, is there any chance he's alive? No. Do you really want to see his body? Oh, not especially. Then leave it for someone else to handle. Not your job. Not right now. All of this is quite similar to the attack when the Kempfer first deploys in episode four of 0080, because in that episode, we also saw a whole team of Federation mobile suits deploying from their ship and we see all of these uh, local RIA defense forces deploying with their machines, but most of the actual fighting happens off screen and we just see like wreckage and explosions. There's something incredibly compelling about depicting battles this way. You can't do it every time, it would lose all of its power, but every once in a while, as a garnish, it's so good. I love the way the doms move. For all of their figure skater-like grace, what I actually like even more, there is a kind of stilted, uh, anti-smooth, <laughs> mechanical feeling to how the mobile suits walk that I really like. They are made kind of clumsy and ungainly and given a huge amount of weight, which is appropriate for such enormous machines. This comes through from the very beginning when we see the Unit 1, like, stumbling desperately backwards. And yes, they are shaped like people, but they don't exactly move like people mm -hmm. because they are big, heavy machines. The best example of this in this episode is when the remaining three of them, Burning, Cole, and Keith, walk up to and then past that cliff where Mora and Nina are watching from the jeep. And there's a shot from the side of the mobile suits walking past and you can't even see the whole mobile suits. It's pulled in too tight. But you really see that like hitch in the leg movements mm -hmm. as they stomp their way across the terrain. And this is a change in philosophy. I am positive I've read comments about the Tomino Gundam shows, Zeta, Double Zeta, Shars Counterattack, that they were intentionally drawing the mobile suits to move like human bodies. Whereas in the OVAs, and especially in 0083, we see an emphasis on mechanism. These are machines, weighty things. I can also imagine that in other parts of the same series, the nature of the movement will be different if they are, say, fighting in space instead. Mm -hmm. I should certainly hope so. There are certainly times during the fighting 
when the mobile suits are moving much more fluidly, much more smoothly. They don't always have that kind of hitchy heaviness to them. But I like that it's there at all. <laughs> because of the way our brains work, if you put that in scenes when we can focus on it, we will then project it ourselves onto scenes where it isn't. Because we know we understand how these machines move. It also adds to our sense of whether or not a character is a particularly skilled pilot, and even whether they have that new typey semi-magical skill at what they're doing. If our baseline is huge, heavy, slightly ponderous, then the kind of person who can make it move smoothly and gracefully must be an incredible pilot. It, it creates that way for our brains to measure just based on the qualities of the animation, somebody's skill as a pilot. They accomplish this with Gato, I think, by not showing us much of him piloting. We see all of the other pilots engaged in the mechanical actions of piloting, and we see them in their cockpits, looking around, seeing things on the monitors, responding to them, being surprised. Gato, much less so. His mobile suit simply moves. It is where it needs to be, when it needs to be there, without any indication of particular effort on his part. And because he has those giant jet boosters on his back, he can fly in ways that some of the others can't, which yet further elevates him into a separate class of opponent. They're quite clever in the way they put the teams together for this, because every single person is in a different mobile suit. So it is instantly recognizable who is doing what, when, where. And the ways that the mobile suits move in combat reflect their pilots and the types of mobile suit that they are. <laughs> the Dom, as you said, slides back and forth, sinuous, serpentine. There's one scene that really stands out, and that's when the Dom uh, kills Lieutenant Allen in the Jim Powered, because the way it skates in, it's constantly changing direction, but it's not just that it's changing direction, it's coming into frame from different sides of the screen in a way that confuses the viewer's brain as much as it confuses Lieutenant Allen. The Zamel, huge, powerful mobile suit. It's got no agility, but enormous inertia. So when we see it, it's moving quickly, but in straight lines. Like when it just rockets past uh, Cole and crashes into Burning's Jim Kai. And then later when Cole basically leapfrogs over it mm -hmm. and it can't do anything about that because it does not have <laughs> the maneuverability to do so. Yes, that I love as the counterpart to the scene earlier with the Zamel rocketing over his head. But after Ko has leapt on it, Burning comes in from off screen and tackles the Zamel the same way it tackled him earlier in the episode. The shots of that tackle are really great. It can be really difficult to get a sense of scale for mobile suits when they're just fighting each other. Uh, but when they throw in a heavy suit against a smaller one, suddenly that sense of scale reemerges. We also get that sense of scale when they walk past Mora and Nina on the cliff again. Mm -hmm. uh, that scene doesn't just create a great sense of movement, it also reinforces that sense of scale. I think what we are talking about here with the ways the mobile suits move is part of what makes people refer to this series as a whole as, quote, realistic or more realistic than other Gundam shows. And I think mostly when people say that, they mean realism in animation. 
And what realism means in animation can be very different person to person. For me, watching this, I feel like it comes down to how much stuff needs to happen in order for something to happen. It's a kind of expanding of small moments in order to give a sense for all of the different moving parts, all of the different details and components. It takes them time to intercept Gato and his team. It takes the Komusai time to spin up its engines, time that then gives Cole the opportunity to destroy it. I can't pinpoint it, and so I'm not positive, but the scene of the Komusai crashing. It sort of starts to take off even after the pilots have been killed, but then because there are no pilots in control of it, it sort of tips end over end uh, and takes this kind of odd flight path and then grinds across the ground before it explodes. I felt like I had seen that before. Mm. I assume in footage of failed rocket launches, the movement of it in that right after it's left the ground moment felt so much like I'd seen it before. Realism, mm -hmm. I guess. And the way they embroider even small moments in order to expand them and give them a lot of narrative and emotional weight. I picked one example from very early in the episode, but you could pick almost any moment. It's after Gato has separated from Cole and he's about to pursue, but then the missiles start landing and he starts panicking a little bit. Uh, and then he hears the voice of burning telling him, don't go to pieces over a missile shower, right? Mm -hmm. What's wrong? Please respond. That sort of thing. It's a brief line. And in many shows, you would just show us a shot of Cole and then we'd hear the voice over the radio. That would be it. And that is really all they needed to do to make the scene work. But what they did instead, we get a shot of Nina panting. We get a shot of Cole panting. Then from behind his shoulder, looking through his monitors, we see explosions. We see him fiddling with his jacket as he's nervous, trying to breathe, trying to cool off. We see him hit his pedal. His mobile suit turns, then it gets grabbed by Burning's mobile suit in kind of a hug. Close up on Burning's eyes, then it shifts to Burning's mouth as he's talking. There's a split second of Ko's eyeball, just his eyeball, as it like widens. And then we see him again, tense but in control, as nearby Keith is going to pieces. All of that for just one line of dialogue, and yet it gives the viewer the sense of Ko's panic. It really wouldn't hit the same way, and we really wouldn't have that same sense of him being frozen if they didn't draw that scene out. Three small production things that I noticed before we move on. I love the pinup art on the Zamel. There's a drawing of a beautiful woman saying Sigzion on the side of it after it's been defeated by burning. When Cole is facing off against the Komusai and it's coming straight at him and he's hesitating, he is sort of hoping they'll just stop, <laughs> I guess. He doesn't want to shoot at them. When he first draws his rifle and points it at them to shoot, the camera angle is from below in a way that makes it look like last shooting. Hmm. It was Leo pointing at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's last shooting. And with the music, man, coming back to this one scene, this really important scene that is just Burning and Keith and Cole walking their mobile suits past where Nina and Mora are watching, 
The music takes on this discordant quality, feels deeply unsettling. Central to this episode, and we've touched on it several times already, and I suspect it's going to be fairly central <laughs> to the show as a whole, is this contrast between rookies and veterans, people who know why they're doing what they're doing and those who don't really, people who joined effectively a peacetime military organization and those who are still at war. <laughs> Ko and Gato, and I wish I could take credit for this, but I think you're the one who pointed it out. From a certain perspective, Gato is set up as the protagonist of this series. The very first scene of the very first episode is about him and his backstory, not about Ko's. He steals a Gundam in the very first episode, a thing all of our protagonists do. The fact that there are specifically, explicitly two Gundams taken by two very different people. And in this episode, Gato himself sets up a distinction between people who fight for ideals versus people who just fight for money, for their country. It's unclear why exactly Ko is fighting because the show has not bothered to give us all that much information about Ko. Um, it's a bit hard to say also without knowing exactly how old Ko and Keith are whether they would have joined when the war was still happening and it's just that they wouldn't have seen very much active combat because they would have only just joined when the war ended, more or less. Or if they joined after the war was fully over or, or what exactly the circumstances were. And for all that, Gato is very clear on what he thinks of uh, Ko's lack of emotional direction. <laughs> I do think that the two of them represent opposite poles that are both bad. Gundam protagonists are often not ideologically driven per se. They are often driven by like very personal, close to home concerns. And I think Gundam in general treats ideological motivation as deeply suspect. Yeah, I don't know that Amuro or Camille or Judo could be said to have had ideological motivations. Bernie explicitly disclaims them in 0080. And Cole may be young and might be a little naive and inexperienced, but we share his reaction to Gato's speech making. All freedom and the sword of justice. And Cole is listening to this like, okay, but what exactly do you mean? Right. And does Gato even know what exactly he means? Or does he just like all the highfalutin words? I think it's a fair and open question how sympathetic the show is to Gato, especially at this point. Because some of the things that he says are kind of ridiculous and hypocritical, though I don't know that the show necessarily agrees with me that those are ridiculous and hypocritical. Like, Gato criticizes Ko, you can't do anything without the Federation behind you. And what could Gato do without? <laughs> My guy, you are the spearhead of a whole organization. You're wearing a uniform that was stolen for you by a spy. You're working for an admiral. You have a bunch of mobile suits here to help you out. You're going to evacuate either on this Komusai or on this submarine. And frankly, you're only able to succeed at the end of this because that submarine commander intuited that you might need him. There's a scene in the episode where the submarine commander considers leaving and then is like, 
Gato wouldn't have called us out here just to fire off some missiles. He must want something else from us. But it you didn't never, give him orders. Right. That was never explicitly made clear. Gato's reliance on all of these other people rather does undercut his, his criticisms of Ko and the Federation. And we know Gato is extremely vain. He's been complaining about this lieutenant's uniform and complaining and complaining, which is to say he's complained twice in two episodes. But we find out he's actually a lieutenant commander, <laughs> which is not even that much higher. <laughs> like It feels extra silly for him to be upset about the rank of his uniform when it's not markedly different. And all of his sort of evil villain-esque speech making, the fact that he doesn't really try to kill Cole, is like, oh, you're not strong enough to fight me now. Come back and fight me when you're stronger. <laughs> uh, and Cole even calls him out for the speech making on the battlefield. But then, like you said, there are also points when Cole responds to this very authoritative voice, this commander voice. <laughs> As though it doesn't really matter who he's a commander for, there's just this reaction mm -hmm. to an experienced senior officer. In a different world, these two are senpai and kohai. Right. In a different world, Gato is Ko's mentor. Yeah, they both love mobile suits and piloting. They're both talented pilots. Part of what makes me question a little bit what exactly it is that Gato believes and how much of his commitment to Xeon now is really about his personal vanity is how ostentatious he is about how much he hates Earth and Earthnoids and how much better space and spacenoids are. Oh, compliments are for those soft Earthnoids <laughs> who need to be encouraged. Like, mm -hmm. I don't need that nonsense. I'm a tough, experienced spacenoid. I don't need compliments. I just need my fancy uniform with all the gold braid on it which is different somehow. I can't wait to never look up at the night sky again, ever. He's such a chauvinist. It feels ostentatious. It feels almost uh, acted up or put on his uh, disdain or even disgust for Earth. I highlight this question of how much the show actually wants us to sympathize with Gato and how much the show agrees with his position because... They sure do a lot to make Xeon into the Nazis. Like, this has been a trend for a while now. There were, like, always some aspects of the Nazi regime in Xeon, even going back to First Gundam, but it's become increasingly more of a thing lately since 0080, since Char's counterattack. And this is, like, as overt as they've gotten with it so far. Um, you pointed out in our last podcast that these... Uh, Yukon subs are like U-boats. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, that they've, they've been translated in different ways. <laughs> now it is revealed that this particular submarine is designated U-801, which is exactly how the Germans designated their U-boats. But the big thing is the flag. Oh, that the flag. flag. They introduce a new flag both in the opening and it's flying from that submarine when they're above water. Um, this is a new flag for Xeon. It's a red, black, and white flag with a white cross and then the black Xeon logo in the very center of it. And it's it's just a Nazi flag. It's the Reichskrieg flag. It's the Nazi battle flag, but with the Xeon logo instead of a swastika. And it's exactly that thing, that historical flag personally designed by Adolf Hitler himself. And they've made that the Xeon flag. And that's the thing that we all have to deal with now. Yep. So it's weird to do that 
in the same show where you're demonstrating a lot of sympathy for the idealistic holdouts of this regime. I am keeping an open mind, as I promised. They could do something really interesting with this. But they're on pretty thin ice right now. More interesting to me in this episode is how it contrasts veterans and rookies. The obvious cases, of course, being Cole, Keith, and Nina. Uh, Keith is cracking up, doing the inappropriate laughing, sweating, eyes tearing up, breathing fast. He is freaking out. But then for every panicky rookie, we have a Captain Synapse, who, you know, clearly they were caught off guard. But when you hear him giving orders, it conveys urgency, but not panic. He just radiates competence. Similarly, the captain of the submarine. He looks unkempt in a way that Gato would surely not approve of. But when they're done with their missile barrage, he doesn't panic and leave. He says, wait, hang on. We need to be around in case they need us. He also sort of radiates this calm competency, knowledge, <laughs> experience. Even Mora, who can watch the battle fairly calmly alongside the panicking, <laughs> not at all used to this, Nina. I was amused in their jeep scene. Mora says, oh, I just want to help out somebody who's in over their head. And Nina initially thinks Mora is talking about her and is gratified by this attention. And then Mora is like, oh, that pilot kid. <laughs> and Nina looks a little disappointed, <laughs> a little let down. Oh, see, I interpreted it quite differently. I thought Nina looked embarrassed by the idea that Mora needed to look after her. And Mora was sparing her feelings by lying and saying that it was actually Cole when it so definitely is not. Maybe. Might have to rewatch it. Uh, and Burning, who at times is reassuring to them and at times kind of like snaps them back into some semblance of calm by almost making them do like homework, like training exercises again. It's like, okay, if this were a training exercise and this were a map and this were what were happening, what would you say? Well, he has to get their minds off of it. And this is something that they probably do all the time in the unit. So it's something that they can do kind of automatically. And something they would have done in, in the academy, as Keith refers to it, that they ought to be able to do almost without thinking. And points out to them, as he says, battle is decided in an instant. If it were just down to skill, no rookies would ever survive <laughs> to become <laughs> veterans. But anyone can make a mistake and nobody can control for everything. So you have a chance. As long as you don't freeze up. I like his redirection of their feelings here into this analysis of the situation because it allows them to view what they're doing, the danger that they're in, somewhat abstractly from a remove that takes them out of the fear moment. And the fear creeps back in when he asks them, if we fought them there, who would have the advantage? Mm -hmm. And Ko, at first, automatically, like he's in the classroom, says, well, they would have an overwhelming advantage. And then you see the realization of what he's just said dawn on him. And he's like, oh, they would have an overwhelming advantage. But Burning brings him back again. Good leadership style. When they leave on the second part of that engagement, when they leave Alan behind, Burning says almost to himself, Alan, looks like you beat us all back to the base. It creates this sense that Burning, either because of who he is or because he has so much combat experience, kind of looks at all of this as, well, we all die eventually. Some of us die sooner and some die later, but we all die. It's coming for us all. And that's part of what lets him be more calm. 
And the other is that it reminded me of, I believe the song is called Loch Lomond, though you take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll be in Scotland before you, which I've heard one interpretation of that song is that it's soldiers who had gone away to fight and the high road is the normal road walking back, but the low road is the spirit road. And I'll take the low road as I'm dying. My spirit will be back home before you even get there. And that, uh, that line about beating us back to base. Oof. Okay, I have one silly complaint. Okay, it might be the same as my silly complaint. Is your silly complaint about the anglicization of Gato's name? No. Well, my silly complaint is his name is written as Annabelle Gato. Is it Annabelle? It should be. Annabelle. Yeah. And for some reason, they don't want to give us Annabelle Gatto. I mean, for the reason that in English, Annabelle is a woman's name. <laughs> they didn't want to be in a boy called Sue situation, I guess. I simply think that they should have gone ahead with it. Cowards. Exactly. <laughs> Annabelle is a man's name. and He's a man. <laughs> Who could doubt it? And yes, there are people actually named Annabelle, but it's a pretty rare name. The katakana they've used for Gato's name is identical to the way you'd write Annabelle in Japanese. And for what it's worth, the Japanese side of the fandom does seem to agree with my objectively correct take here that his name is supposed to be Annabelle. Okay, rant over. What's your complaint? Uh, my silly complaint is that it feels excessive and also pretty ridiculous for Gato to be in their, like, <laughs> academy textbooks. The war only ended three years ago. Even if Cole and Keith only just left the academy and came here, those materials would only have been two years removed from the war, maximum three. And there's gonna be all this stuff about like one particular fighter ace. I'm sorry, unless he's the Red Baron, nobody cares that much about one fighter ace. I am pleased to inform you that he basically is the Red Baron. Okay. Now, the only thing unrealistic about this is that it depicts the Federation military as, like, quick to respond and <laughs> to have a probably pretty good training program, which contradicts basically everything else we've seen about the Federation military. But I'm prepared to accept it. I just think they didn't need to add this extra layer to make Gato even more of a boogeyman. He's already plenty terrifying as he is. And you could even possibly have had one of the veterans mention later, oh, beep. <laughs> I fought this guy at Solomon, or oh, I heard about this guy at Solomon. As opposed to Keith, like, oh, we've read about him in our textbook. <laughs> one final petty complaint to leave you with. In general, I think the new sound effects from the 2006 remastering are fine. They're perfectly adequate. They don't particularly stand out to me as either good or bad, but the alarm that plays right before General Marnery's HQ gets blown up, um, that's a car alarm. That's a car alarm. That is not a military base alarm. You're right. That is petty. I didn't even notice. And I hate car alarms. In the original mix, it actually does sound like a real alarm. There wasn't a missile from the enemy ship, sir. You mean they have a heavy mobile suit? See that, that's an alarm. And now Nina's research on the history of laser discs. 
As Tom explained, we ran into a little confusion about release dates for 0083. Specifically, whether there were different release dates for Laserdisc and VHS versions, with a Laserdisc coming out one day earlier. I thought perhaps it was an effort to promote Laserdiscs, banking on mega fans and the generally impatient to want the latest and greatest Gundam release as soon as possible. This was almost certainly not the case, for reasons I'll explain later, but it did get me wondering about the history of Laserdiscs. How long were they around? How does the underlying technology work? Were they popular in Japan? Laserdiscs hold a special place in my heart. My dad was an enthusiast for the format, and most of the movies and shows my family owned for home viewing were on Laserdisc. We started shifting to VCD and DVD in the late 90s. So I'm excited to indulge my nostalgia and dig into a medium that is generally agreed to have been before its time, an essential step on the path that brought us CDs, DVDs, and Blu-rays, trailblazing many of the features we take for granted today. For those of you who have never seen or handled one, a Laserdisc or LD looks like an oversized CD. About 12 inches or 30 centimeters in diameter, it consists of two single-sided aluminum discs layered in plastic with a hole in the middle. They were usually in a soft plastic bag sort of cover, which then fit into a cardstock slip cover, very similar to the cover on a record. The storage capacity of a Laserdisc did increase over time, but topped out at one hour per side. When one side was done playing, you would have to flip the disc over, and some films required multiple discs. The earliest Laserdisc players opened on top, and the disc was set into it, very like a record player. Later players had a large tray that came out of the front, and the Laserdisc would be set into an indentation in the tray, very like some CD players. One of the ways in which Laserdisc technology was revolutionary is that it was the first ever optical video disc format. Optical discs can be either transmissive, light is shined through it and then detected on the other side, or, as in laser discs, reflective, light shined at the disc reflects back at a sensor, and can store analog information, digital information, or both. Laser discs were used for analog and for combined analog and digital. The information is encoded in a spiral from the inner part of the disc outwards to the edges. And in the case of Laserdisc, the spiral track was almost 42 miles long. <laughs> That's 67 kilometers. <laughs> the earliest versions of Laserdisc players used helium-neon laser tubes until solid-state lasers were introduced in 1984. Inside the player, the disc is spun at anywhere from 200 to 4,000 RPM. Depending on drive type, disc format, and the distance of the read head from the center of the disc. Now, audio had been encoded on optical discs for a long time. The earliest example on Wikipedia is 1884, when Alexander Graham Bell, Chichester Bell, and Charles Sumner Tainter recorded sound on a glass disc using a beam of light. But it wasn't until 1958 that American engineer David Paul Gregg invented an optical disc for recording analog video granted U.S. patents in 1961 and 1969. Gregg's patents were purchased by MCA, or Music Corporation of America, a company which sort of no longer exists, but thanks to the nature of media company mergers and acquisitions, is the legal predecessor to NBC Universal, among other things. Don't you just love the world? So complicated. 
American James T. Russell is credited with creating the first system for recording digital information on a transparent optical foil, U.S. patents filed in 1966. But both Greg and Russell had created floppy disk formats, literally soft, bendable, which posed considerable storage and use problems. I'm imagining... Floppy movies. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm imagining a nightmare scenario where somebody... You know, maybe you have guests over or a parent or somebody who doesn't quite understand the format. And it's just like, oh, I'll help you tidy up. I'll just fold up all of your movies. <laughs> they take up less space this way. It was a Dutch physicist, Peter Kramer, who created the first reflective optical video disc with the encoded layer covered by a protective layer, a rigid format. Those U.S. patents were filed in 1972, thus establishing the physical structure that would be used for consumer optical discs thereafter, CDs, DVDs, etc. Kramer was working at Philips at the time, the Dutch electronics company, and MCA and Philips co-developed the Laserdisc for home video sales, launching it in the United States in 1978 under the name DiscoVision. Shortly thereafter, MCA sold their stake to the Japanese electronics company Pioneer. Laserdisc was launched in Japan in 1981 and in Europe in 1983. While best known as a format for watching movies at home, there were a number of variations and more niche Laserdisc products as well. Introduced in 1982, Laser Karaoke by Pioneer used 12 and 8-inch discs, 30 and 20 centimeters, and a specialty player to play cover versions of songs with on-screen lyrics and accompanying videos, and offered a choice of backing tracks, with or without audible lead vocal. And Laserdiscs offered the ability to easily skip to a specific track without the imprecise fast-forwarding and rewinding required on tapes. I'm not certain, but from the description, it sounds as though this was the first time karaoke machines included video. So if you have ever laughed at a hilariously incongruous video playing behind the lyrics to paint it black at a karaoke place, you may have Laserdisc to thank. 450,000 of these machines were sold for home use in Japan. Wow. And then they must have sold so many Laserdiscs just so that everyone could have all the tracks. Think about how bad DLC is for something like Rock Band now. In the show notes, I'm going to include a link to an advertisement for this machine that appeared in Spin Magazine in the United States. It's very fun. They do try to get people to pronounce it karaoke, Clearly, that didn't stick. The 8-inch Laserdisc, introduced in 1983, encoded up to 20 minutes of analog video per side and was commonly used for music video compilations. The 1990 Laserjuke, a video jukebox, also used 8-inch Laserdiscs, and this was the Laserdisc format that hung around the longest, produced until 2002. The confusingly named Compact Laserdisc, released in 1986, was the larger 12-inch size, but combined the audio of a full album, like a compact disc, with some music videos. Meanwhile, LD Single, from 1987, could be 12 inches or 8, but was single-sided, making it the same thickness as a CD. But this meant that earlier Laserdisc players needed an adapter in order to play them. The adapter was just a plastic disc, the thickness of the other half of a normal laser disc that would sit in the tray underneath the disc you were playing. So that it would be the right like thickness for the player. The right distance from the laser, basically, and the reed head. 
Neither of these two, the compact Laserdisc or the LD single, ever really took off. The LV-ROM by Philips was also released in 1986 and could store approximately 324 megabytes of digital information, or about 36 minutes of video. It was only used for institutional multimedia projects, most famously the BBC Doomsday Project, a partnership with Acorn Computers, Philips, Logica, and the BBC, with some funding from the European Commission's Esprit program. The project marked the 900th anniversary of the original Doomsday Book, an 11th century census of England. The project was conceived of as a kind of census or survey of the country conducted by schoolchildren as an academic and learning exercise. They would collect and record qualitative and quantitative data about their town and input it into this system, and eventually it would all be compiled <laughs> into a full collection of information about England. It required a proprietary disk reader and connected computer system and was originally planned as a delivery system for all kinds of interactive educational materials. But the expense of the proprietary system prevented it from really taking off. That's surprising. If there's one thing I know about schools is that they're flush with cash and always buying the latest technological innovations. It's a bit off topic here, and so I didn't include it, but the uh, Wikipedia pages for this project and several other pages go into a lot of detail about efforts to then preserve that data. <laughs> because what data was compiled is very interesting. It's a great snapshot of England at that time, uh, but it was on this system that people had not been able to emulate or port. <laughs> and so there was some worry about losing all of that great <laughs> information. Uh, but it was preserved successfully. So look into BBC Doomsday Project if you're curious. Some modern anime releases now, especially those coming from the licensing video company Discotech, use Laserdisc copies of otherwise lost, uh, of otherwise lost film in order to create modern, high-quality Blu-ray releases of anime that hasn't been preserved very well in its original format. The device that they used to do that was invented to archive the information from the BBC's Doomsday Project. I wonder if they're called Discotech because the original Laserdiscs were called DiscoVision. Maybe. <laughs> That's so cool. But yeah, it's called the Doomsday Duplicator. It was invented in order to archive all of that good information, and now it can be used to pull anything off of an old Laserdisc. Sometime in the 1990s, an attempt was made at 3D video on Laserdisc, but the 3D effects required the classic two-tone 3D glasses, and only a handful of mostly pretty gimmicky titles were released. You're under the ocean, you're riding a roller coaster, that kind of thing. And the 1993 LD-ROM an attempt at a home video game system with games on Laserdisc, was a commercial failure. The system was simply too expensive. Although it's worth remembering that the 1983 game Dragon's Lair was released on Laserdisc first, before it was released in an arcade version or for any other platform, a decision they made mainly because of the superb video quality and resolution on Laserdiscs. These other use cases are interesting, but the core of the business was movies, so what benefits did Laserdisc offer vis-a-vis -vis VHS? The best way to explain is to talk about the rise of cinephile culture and of film and media studies, especially textual analysis of film. Although they encoded analog video, the resolution of Laserdisc video was a huge improvement over VHS and Betamax, 
and not much worse than the earliest DVDs. The transfers were often cleaner than those to VHS. There were fewer little visual artifacts from the process, there was less visual noise, and, especially important to someone who wants the quote-unquote intended viewing experience, Laserdiscs were often letterbox editions, formatted to preserve the original aspect ratio without cropping. And here's a bit that blew my mind. Laserdiscs were the first home video format to introduce skippable chapters. It was the first time you could easily jump to a specific point in a movie, not just fast-forwarding or rewinding by feel. <laughs> not only that, but with Laserdisc, you could jump to any specific frame, as long as you knew the number, and could keep that frame up while you analyzed it without damaging the disc or the player. Compared to VHS, which look pretty terrible when paused, not to mention that pausing for too long stretches and damages the tape itself. And of course, for film studies, there were special analysis projectors for 16mm reels designed to prevent paused film burning up, but these were much more cumbersome to use and obviously didn't offer the same ease of jumping back and forth between scenes of a film. Revisit for a second. Paused film burning up? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, this is something that's commonly used in movies for drama, but if you pause 16mm or other like physical film in front of a projector, the projector light is so hot it will melt the film. The film will start burning and get melted holes in it. I believe it's not actually the film itself so much as the coatings and the, the various chemical layers on the outside are quite flammable and the light is very hot. So <laughs> these analysis projectors basically just used fans. They put a ton of very powerful fans in the way so that the film wouldn't burn. But if you've ever seen that effect shown in a movie or a TV show of people are watching a screen and then suddenly the center starts to crackle and burn and a hole spreads in the middle, that's what they're portraying, that someone has improperly handled the film and so it's been burnt up by the lamp on the projector. But why is it always that the parts of the film that are most crucial to the narrative are the most flammable? Explain that, science. The laws of narrative drama. More powerful than physics. Beyond even these conveniences, Laserdisc players with a serial interface could be controlled by a computer, enabling the creation of the user's own chapters and bookmarks. DVD and Blu-ray players with serial interfaces nowadays use many of the same commands and protocols used with Laserdisc players decades ago. These capabilities, combined with storage capacity, led to Laserdisc releases like 1991's Vienna, The Spirit of a City, which included 15,000 still images of artwork from Viennese museums and 20 minutes of motion video, and the viewer could easily skip to any specific artwork by its frame number. Combine these attributes with the fact that purchasing one Laserdisc cost just 25% of the cost of renting a film on 16mm to show in a school, and you can see how Laserdisc went on to kill 16mm film rental. Plus, you wouldn't have needed a projectionist. <laughs> and fewer fires. And that's just the video side. Audio on Laserdisc started as analog but eventually went digital, including encoding for Dolby 5.1 and DTS. Plus, a single Laserdisc had room for multiple audio tracks. They could include analog and digital audio, or, dun-dun-dun, bonus tracks. In fact, Laserdisc set the stage for the now de rigueur special editions of movies, 
director's cuts, and bonus features, like commentary tracks, making-of documentaries, deleted scenes, trailers, storyboards, historical materials, etc. This started, unsurprisingly, with Voyager Company's Criterion Collection in 1983. Their first two Laserdisc releases were Citizen Kane and the 1933 King Kong, and they went on to release 200 movies to Laserdisc over the next 15 years. That version of Citizen Kane could be regarded as the first of the modern special editions, complete with interviews, commentary tracks, documentaries, and still photographs. So they produced higher quality audio and video compared to VHS or Betamax, and a host of other features. Initially, Laserdiscs were even cheaper than VHS to produce and more durable, since they had no moving parts. But they got more expensive to produce over time, something to do with the equipment used for pressing the protective plastic layers, while VHS got cheaper and cheaper to make. The discs may not wear out in the same way VHS tapes do, the physical wear and tear, but they can experience what's called laser rot. If a substandard adhesive is used to sandwich the layers, it can cause the aluminum layers to oxidize. That oxidization can also happen if the layers aren't fully sealed or if the seal degrades, causing the aluminum layers to be exposed to the outside air. It's not clear how common this is. I know it happened to some of my family's laser discs, but we lived in a very hot and humid climate, not ideal for any kind of preservation. Anyway, the expense of both the player and the individual movies prevented widespread adoption in the U.S., and they remained obscure in Europe. The lack of a writable version has also been pointed to as a drawback of the medium, though this isn't exactly accurate. There were blank laserdiscs and special machines to write to them, but they were extremely expensive and only really marketed for institutional use by businesses and universities. In the end, the medium was most popular in Japan and Southeast Asia, especially Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. And it's worth pointing out that one source claimed Laserdisc prices were kept low in Japan, kept comparable to VHS prices, in order to aid adoption of the medium. Whereas in the United States, a Laserdisc was much more expensive than a VHS. I had noticed this and thought it was a bit odd that for 0083, the prices are the same for the Laserdisc or the VHS, and yet there were special like bonuses included if you bought the Laserdisc versions, clearly incentivizing that option. The last Laserdisc releases were in 2000 in the US and 2001 in Japan, although Pioneer continued to make Laserdisc players until 2009. In the end, approximately 16.8 million Laserdisc players were sold worldwide, but just 2 million of those were sold to US households. Estimates put the adoption of Laserdisc at just 2%, of U.S. households, but a full 10% of Japanese households. There is, to this day, considerable interest in Laserdisc collection and preservation. Some feel that Laserdisc has just the right level of static, that new remasters to DVD and Blu-ray are too cleaned up, but, quote, if you watch it on Laserdisc, it's just a scan of a reel, so there's noise and imperfections, which is closer to how it looked in the theater. Another source goes on to say, quote, it's thought by audiophiles that the sound on Laserdisc is superior to that on DVD. It's also thought that Laserdisc has a smoother and more film-like sound to it. Laserdiscs are, unlike their descendants, region-free, so watching imports is a lot less complicated. And most of all, Laserdiscs are valued by, shall we say, completionists. There are plenty of rare releases, special editions, and box sets that are only available on Laserdisc. 
The most commonly used example is Disney's Song of the South, which received a Laserdisc release in Japan. But sources also mention that for a long time, and maybe still, the best way to get the original theater version of the original Star Wars trilogy for home viewing was Laserdisc. Later releases all feature edits made in 1997. Another example is Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Trilogy, 1901-1980. Released in 1992, this was a chronological recut of the original Godfather Trilogy, with some additional scenes. In this form, the film was 583 minutes long and took 11 Laserdiscs, and the set included two more Laserdiscs exclusively for bonus features. There exists a VHS version of this cut, but it doesn't preserve the aspect ratio, and it's never been released on DVD. I mean, it's probably not very good, but even so... Like I said, completionists. <laughs> it's not about it being good, it's about having all the things. <laughs> a lot of Laserdisc releases also had, like, really good, unique art for the Laserdisc release, or pack-ins and stuff like that. I know a lot of people who seek out and collect Laserdiscs, even though they have no means of actually playing the discs. Well, it's a nice big cover. It's like a record sleeve, and so there's a lot of room for artwork. And because it was being treated as a premium format, uh, I think it's often, like, gussied up in a way that modern releases very rarely are. Finally, many of the bonus features that appeared on Laserdisc releases were not carried over to later DVD releases. A lot of those commentary tracks and making-of featurettes and still photographs only exist on Laserdisc. Circling back to Gundam, clearly I was off base at first. Gundam probably wasn't being used as a lure to promote Laserdiscs. Laserdisc releases probably appealed to hardcore fans and collectors, animation obsessives, those who wanted the highest quality viewing and listening experience. Stardust Memory isn't even the first Gundam released on Laserdisc. That had happened almost a decade before, just after the introduction of the format to Japan. The first Gundam movies, various SD shorts, Char's Counterattack, War in the Pocket, and F-91 were all released on Laserdisc before Stardust Memory. And the last Gundam to be released on Laserdisc would be Turn A, in December of 2000. Despite growing up with them, I had no idea Laserdiscs were so revolutionary, pioneering the way many of us now watch movies at home. It certainly increases my appreciation for them and their role in film history. But I don't miss getting up to flip discs. Next time on episode 8.3, Rubble Landscape. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 3, and... The Federation can have little a nuke as a treat. E violation. Mama Bear Mora. Wait, Keith is his last name? The birds will laugh at Lieutenant Allen. Mobile Suit Paintball. And Dirty Old Goat. Thanks, I hate him. Extremely unprofessional. Now that's a guy who's used to being in trouble. I'm sensing a theme here. I just really, really, really want to punch that guy. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours.
Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week was submitted by Morph Moth, and it's that F91 was actually never intended to be a film or a TV series. It was always meant to be an avant-garde experiment to create a direct-to-theater compilation of a TV show that never existed. It's like how Bride of Suginam comes from a long-running TV show that never was. It's hard for me to come up with Wrong Gundam Opinions because of my objectively correct opinions, so send me your Wrong Gundam Opinions. I'll totally listen to them. Hitting the mic. All right. Something about that particular, like, thud. It sounds like hitting a drum. I keep wanting to say Moira, and I keep writing Moira in my notes, but that's not it. <laughs> she says as she activates her verbal beam saber. Resisting the urge to make all kinds of stupid jokes because I don't think that they would be helpful right now. And they wouldn't. Uh, you're learning. <laughs> and they say they can, they can be taught. Teaching an old dog new tricks. Well, you're certainly an old dog. <laughs> ho ho ho! I deserved that one. Yes, you did. You kind of set it up for me. Oh yeah. Uh, because I'm a good husband. I set up your jokes. I can't believe all of those ads. <laughs> I can't believe all those companies decided to pull their ads. I thought they had faith in us. Any more animation or sound things you want to talk about? I, don't know, I have so many things to say about this episode, I feel like there's no way to avoid leaving a bunch of it out. Oh no. Unfortunately. A lot of veterans who were pilots would remember, like, oh, that specific plane, like that pilot who we were always running into, because you would fly often within similar kind of arenas over and over again. You would encounter a lot of the same fighter pilots over and over again. And you kind of like knew them? Not really, obviously, but <laughs> you were like, that guy. Our alarms! Our nemesis. <laughs> <laughs>